Welcome to another episode of There Will Be A Test, the podcast that promises to make you the most interesting person at a party, provided you only go to the parties that are really boring. Today's show is a cracker. We have funny people Harley Breen, Michelle Brazier, and Dilrick Jai Singer. And for our experts, we're going to be talking about the Eureka Stockade with Professor Claire Wright. So if you're fans of the Southern Cross or, you know, just a brouhaha on the hills of Ballarat, that'll be worth listening to. Also, animal gender. Yeah. Did you know that fish can have different bits? And I'm talking one fish can have bits for a while and then change their bits to other bits. Look, she'll sell it better than that. We've got Professor Jenny Graves talking all about that. And then lastly, we have Thomas Caldwell, and he's going to be talking about 2001, A Space Odyssey. Enjoy. Just before we get started, a quick word from the supporters of this podcast. That's right. Moondog Brewery are as famous for their venues as they are for their delicious and unique craft beers. But what do you do if you can't enjoy a beer at a Moondog venue during COVID times? Well... You can bring the pub directly to your house with Pub in a Box. You'll get a mix of their best beers, best nuts, two schooner glasses and a bar mat to really top off the experience. They actually sent me one. It is so much fun. With $150 worth of value and free shipping, these babies are going fast. So grab yours while you can. You can order at moondogbrewing.com.au. Seriously, treat yourself. There will be a test. I'm your host, Dave Thornton, and today I'll be joined by a panel of funny people who are in for a few surprises. That's right, they have absolutely no idea what the topics on today's show are, so why don't we meet them? First up, we have an award-winning comedian, podcaster, and host of the Ground King series, Taboo, on Channel 10, all the way from the People's Republic of Dalesford. It's Harley Breen. How are you, Harley? Yeah, I'm good, Thorno. Uh, sorry you can't see my face, um, but it's actually 1984 out here in Dalesford and uh, the internet hasn't got here yet. <laughs> I know, for everyone listening, we're doing this over Zoom because obviously uh, Melbourne at, at the moment's kind of locked in like the Thunderdome in Mad Max 3. And uh, yeah, so we're all working off each other's reception and there is only one mobile phone allowed in Dalesford. So that's why Harley might be a bit off. Correct. <laughs> And our next guest, she's a comedian, singer, writer, actor. Oh, God. And she's one half of successful comedy duo, Double Denim, and a regular on Sean McAuliffe's Mad as Hell. It's Michelle Brazier. How are you, Mish? I'm very good, thank you. I'm having a great day. It's sunny. I'm very pleased with myself. It really is sunny in Melbourne. Like, what are yeah. the odds? Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not a rumour. It's, it's true. It's sunny. And our next guest... He's an award-winning comedian who is known for his many TV appearances on Utopia on the ABC and I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. He even has a Logie under his belt. It's Dilrick Jai Singer. Oh, thank you. Happy to be the Tina Turner to Harley's Mad Max here. And um, <laughs> I, <laughs> What a reference. I, um, oh, well done. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Nice to see all your faces except for Harley's. <laughs> Now, guys, because we have experts coming on, I always like to ask our comedians, would you be an expert in any field? And Harley, I know you and I, we're straight white comedians, so we're experts in wearing flannel shirts and black jeans, but is there anything else you're an expert in? Um, I don't know if you've picked up from the uh, the pre-production stage of this particular podcast, but I'm very tech savvy. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, for our listeners. Oh, 
my God, we laugh. When you got on this Zoom, you were in a shed with your wife and she was holding a newborn just going, I don't know, mate. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, no, we, look, uh, isolation's really done great for our relationship. Um, I think my wife is uh, really getting used to my rational behaviour when it comes to things not working the first time, so um, things are going great. Is that why you've got three kids? That's, that's <laughs> correct. That's correct. I'm just breeding myself an audience. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> Michelle, <laughs> moving on from parental angst, do you think you're an expert in anything? I reckon I'm probably an expert at telling what kind of dog a dog is. What do you mean? Oh. Well, like, so this morning I was at the cafe out in the sun. That is not a rumour. It is true. It's sunny in Melbourne today. And my partner pointed and he said, oh, look, a black chow chow. And I was like, that's not a chow chow. That's that's a very that's a that's, and it can't be a samoyed because it's white. So it's got to be okay. That's a Finnish laphound. Like I can do that. I can do. Wow. wow. Yeah, I'm good at dogs. And Dill, are you an expert in anything? I reckon the one thing that I've always outclassed everyone at is uh, random trivia from the TV show Friends. There was a <laughs> time that you could nothing to do with the real life uh, actors and stuff. I have no idea what their names are, but in the show, I would remember people's birthdays and the inconsistencies. Ross has like two different birthdays mentioned. That, and I would say the other one is Eminem lyrics. Those are my <laughs> two two obsessions, and I, I reckon those are the only two things that I can sort of hold a conversation going. <laughs> we might as well introduce our first expert. Are you feeling nervous? Are you feeling smart? Anything in between, guys? I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited for facts. <laughs> yeah, look, I've been a parent now for 10 years and I don't think that anybody could demoralise me more than my children, so I'm fine. I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's confidence boosting. Let's meet our first expert. It is Claire Wright. How are you, Claire? I'm great. How are you? Man, I'm really good. I, we're all on Zoom at the moment and you've really stamped your claim because behind you, is uh, 850 books or so? Yeah. yeah, a lot more books than you've got. Also, my laptop is piled on a on books as well. It's um, very not going to pass occupational health and safety requirements, but it does prove I have more books. I mean, <laughs> have you heard of Kindle by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful device. Terrible in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> so, Claire, you're a historian, so I would gather... Your expert field is something to do with history. What are we going to be talking about, Claire? So our special topic today is the Eureka Stockade. Well, Harley, mate, you're in Darlford, yeah. which is just a stone's throw from where Eureka all kicked off there in Ballarat. Um, yes, Claire, I'm out here with your people. Oh, that's good. You're in the Golden Triangle. Lovely. Half your luck. And I have a 10-year-old that's heard the news that there was gold in them there hills and I cannot stop him from digging up somebody else's property we're currently <laughs> living on. I reckon he should go for it because it's probably still there. <laughs> the first question, Claire, as a person who grew up uh, in Sri Lanka and only came to Australia 16 years ago, what is the Eureka Stockade? I know that it gets mentioned. I know there's buildings named after, uh, you know, based on it. But what is it? If you go to Ballarat, there's a pizza place named after it, Eureka Pizza. They do a very good broccoli and lemon. <laughs> the Eureka Stockade is considered to be one of the foundation moments in Australian history. It's the birthplace of Australian democracy. And this was the moment uh, on the 3rd of December, 1854, when the military stormed a 
barricade that had been erected by the miners of Ballarat. They killed at least 30 people in this battle. The battle itself lasted a very short time, about 15 minutes. But <laughs> from... <laughs> someone called the cops. <laughs> from, that, from that 15 minutes, we have built an extraordinary historical tradition based on this legacy of Eureka where our democracy was born and all sorts of values and characteristics that are considered to be part of the Australian character, like standing up for your mates, uh, unity, uh, strength in numbers, defying authority. These are all of the things that are considered to be part, essential part of the Australian character. So this 15-minute battle on a, on a, a, a goldfield, in Ballarat in the 1850s is called the Eureka Stockade. I've got to say, Claire, it is, that is incredibly Australian. It's like, hey, guys, we're lacking a bit of uh, cultural identity. Let's have a fight. 15 minutes? Yeah, that'll yeah, do. That'll do. That's all. <laughs> That's, That's all we need. Yeah, yeah. We should be able to, uh, to fight for our rights and our liberties in that much time and still be back in time for the footy. Yeah, done. It proves that mainly there were men fighting because, like, a birth lasting about 15 minutes. I mean, like, I'll do it. That's me done. I do not have <laughs> well, the attitude to keep pushing through this. Funny that you should say that because that's what I spent 10 years researching. So the way that this history has always been taught and because this is a foundation story in Australian history, it's taught in primary school. I certainly learned it in the 1970s. It's still taught to our kids. Harley, your son will be learning about it in primary school as we speak. It's taught well, again in I'm high school. Co- I'm currently doing remote learning, so I'm not real sure that she's <laughs> currently learning that. <laughs> well, he'll he'll get an A plus on his Eureka Stockade uh, project after today's session. It's Thank taught again in much. it's taught again in high school, and the way that it has been taught about for 160 years is as if only men were there on that frontier during that gold rush. That there were these military men and these miners they were all dudes they came together they had a fight democracy is one and i kind of started thinking you know what i don't buy this that you know there was one vital clue they raised a flag the miners raised a flag we call it the eureka flag but the stars on the flag were sewn out of the petticoats of women and this gave it a kind of saucy little element to this story yeah And so what I thought was, hang on, if there's women wearing petticoats in Ballarat in 1854, but we've been told this story that the the goldfields is only populated by men, uh, how does this work? Mm. So I set about using that little anomaly in the story to go back to the primary sources and to dig up the real facts um, of Eureka, and it was wrong. A third of the population of Ballarat at the time were women and children. Women are all over this shit and (laughs) even down to the fact that a woman was killed in the Eureka Stockade, which you won't find Well, before my book came out. You wouldn't find on any of the monuments or statues and memorials in Ballarat to the fallen of Eureka. Now, being truthfully honest, Claire, I've been to Sovereign Hill. Uh, That's about my knowledge of the Eureka Stockade. That's as far as it goes. And the last time I was there, I think I was in grade four. So could you give us some information about the lead up to what led to the situation? 1851, Europeans discover that there is gold uh, in these regions. And this starts a gold rush to Australia. The Californian gold, you know, the, the, the California 49ers, so 49 was the American gold rush. It's starting to taper off and the whole world turns on its heels and starts to head to Australia. 
So if I can just give you a sense of that massive tidal wave of immigration, in 1851, Victoria had 25,000 people. By 1861, there were 600,000 people here. Okay, so just imagine if our cities grew at that rate today. So huge social disruption, huge pressure put on land, put on the economy, put on politics. And in particular, this is the important point. Up until this time, we have no democratic rights. A a British government has set um, the parliament in Victoria. There is a lower house and an upper house but they are not popularly elected. You have to have land to be able to to vote. And so the problem is, is that the miners, they've got to pay for the ability to be on the gold fields. They've got to pay a miner's fee, a licence. But they, they, and they've got to pay that whether they find gold or not. So this is a poll tax, yeah? It's not an income tax, it's a poll tax, and we all know how popular poll taxes have been throughout history. I don't know anything about those, but... I used to pay poll tax when I went to men's gallery back in the day. Before. <laughs> <laughs> well, big riots in England when Margaret Thatcher tried to, uh, tried to instill a, a poll tax um, in Britain. So the, the, the tax, the, the, the licence fee, was really unpopular because miners just didn't... They, they didn't get anything for their money. They didn't get any services. They didn't get any roads. They, they, and they, what they certainly didn't get was the vote. And so this is what they get really cranky about. You know, the basic democratic principle, no taxation without representation. So they're paying taxation, a monthly licence fee, They've got no voice. They've got no say. They can't change any of these rules. By 1854, they're completely crapped off with this situation. They try to tell the governor and they try to go through all the constitutional ways of telling the government that this situation is effed up and they, the government just doesn't listen. I refuse to believe that we, the government wouldn't listen to the people. That seems crazy. <laughs> This Things have changed so crazy. much now, Mish. Yeah. I know. Yeah. You know, it's ancient yeah. history we're talking about here. You, know, <laughs> you, never, you never repeat the mistakes of the past. <laughs> and so this is, this is where we get to basically December 1854. They're done. They're over it. They make a stand. They burn their licences. There's about 40,000 miners now in Ballarat. And remember, we're talking here about it's a tent city. There's no buildings. This is just a big camping expedition, yeah? 40,000 people camping um, under canvas, in poverty, very little to eat. It's like the first big day out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And just as much grog, plenty of grog. So can I ask about the battle, this 15-minute battle that lasted? What was the weapons used? How many, how many t- died? Like, what, was, what did that look like, 15 and, minutes? Yeah, and who was fighting? And was there a hip-hop musical like in Hamilton? <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. Legitimate well, question. There has been Eureka the Musical. So it was was so bad. It was just, (laughs) I I, I saw it three times with the hope that it would get better and it just didn't. Claire, were you Um, hoping that that only went for 15 minutes? (laughs) 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 So the miners get together, they burn their licences. Then the very next day, the government sends mounted police in to the camps. 
They ask to see the miner's licence. If they haven't got the licence, they get taken straight off to the logs. So the logs is the word for the jail, and it literally is some stumps of wood on the ground that they chain the miners to because the jail itself is about the size of a matchbox and there's and there's so many people who can't pay their licenses they just they so they just chain them all up to the logs outside so the miners now are in a situation where they haven't got licenses the government's ordered a digger hunt they're hauling people off to the logs and they go we got to protect ourselves and we're going to have a place where if you haven't got a license you can come and you can be protected. And so they build, and I'm talking, this all happens in the matter of like 48 hours. They build this stockade, which is like really kind of a really shitty fence. <laughs> and in some places it's up to your knees, in other places it's up to your shoulders and it's overturned carts and it's empty beer barrels and there's a whole section of it at the back that isn't even enclosed at all. Party at Harley's house. Yeah, <laughs> they get it inside. <laughs> And they, they go in there and they arm themselves with guns and with um, pikes. So mostly the miners have what are called pikes. And that's just big pointy sticks, really. Um, are they and, vampires that are coming in? Or? <laughs> yeah, they, mine, they, they arm themselves with pikes and garlic. Yeah, that's right. I've been watching do. a lot of Buffy lately, so it's good for me just to have that reference. So it, it's, 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 you know, it, it works for me now. Thank you for changing that. So the military, they've got rifles and the miners, they've got pointy sticks and garlic and <laughs> a barricade that's not even closed in at the back. And they also make this flag. Well, the women of Eureka make this flag. And it's um, it's a beautiful thing, actually, because the flag is based on the Southern Cross, which is the one thing that unites all of the miners. They've come from all parts of the world, Italy, Germany, France, Russia, the UK, America, India, New Zealand. There are Maoris there. And the thing that unites them all is that when they look into the night sky, there is this constellation that represents the new place they all came to, and that is the Southern Cross. So they make this flag. They call it, you know what they call it? Guess what they call, we call it the Eureka flag now, but guess what they call this flag? Judy's underpants. <laughs> <laughs> No. No, any no, no. Any other takers? They call this flag the Australian flag. It's the first time there has been a flag that represents this new place called Australia. So they raise this flag inside the barricade. It's Saturday morning, the 2nd of December. They've got about 1500 people in there. The tents that have just been enclosed by it. So there's women, there's kids, and they think by Saturday night, they reckon, oh, well, they're not going to attack us today. We're safe. And so most of them leave. There's about 150 people left. And that's when the military send in the troops 3 a.m. on Sunday morning. Bloody oh. Sunday. You dogs. dogs. Dogs, oh, yeah. bloody dogs. Well, okay. being... before, before lockout laws as well, so they would have been well into the grog by that point. <laughs> that, in, that English army, they knew what they were doing. They didn't take over half the world for nothing. 
So military come in, bang, 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 it's all over in 15 minutes. Then they set fire to everything. So actually most of the damage happens afterwards. They just set fire to everybody's tent. Um, they just say... get the vampires as well. <laughs> uh, with the end of the battle, I'm really obsessed with this 15-minute battle thing. Like, <laughs> did someone blow a whistle? How did it end? Like, what, who said, all right, all right, all right, we're done here? The military were really good at what they did. There are about 450 of them. They're, they've got guns. The miners have got pointy sticks. And it's really clear that they've won really quickly. So after 15 minutes, it's like nobody's firing any more bullets. Um, and nobody's chasing anybody around with a stick. Actually, what the, the, the soldiers were still chasing, there were people lying on the ground, miners lying on the ground dead. Then they just went and just started poking holes in them with their bayonets yeah. and uh and they then they to. hauled down the flag and then they stomped on the flag what? so that was a good sign too that it was over you have to what? Put, poke the hole through even if a vampire looks dead you do have to. <laughs> <laughs> you really know a lot about vampires yeah i do yeah claire earlier you said that it was the birth of democracy in australia so what were the ramifications after the eureka stockade so the main thing that they were fighting for was the ability to have a voice in the laws that govern them. They wanted some parliamentary representation, and that happened. So this whole licence system was abolished after Eureka. They brought in something now called a miner's right, and if you possessed a miner's right, it meant you could vote. And so what was now ushered into Victorian politics was a democratically elected lower house. Yeah. And, you know, we've been really good at turning this 15 minutes into a foundation story that we can all be proud of, the birthplace of Australian democracy. Claire, thank you so much. You have made us more interesting at dinner parties. And don't forget, guys, obviously there will be a test at the end of all this. So hopefully you've soaked up all the information. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Claire. It's been a pleasure. So, guys, we now have our second expert. This is Professor Jenny Graves. How are you, Jenny? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. And, Jenny, what will you be talking to us about today? Well, I'll be talking about sex and weird Australian animals. And if you can think of anything more fun to work on than that, I'd like to know what it was. Oh, so you've been out with Harley before. It is a great <laughs> What? I'm working on that right now. <laughs> Jenny, what does that mean? Is this is is that the course that you run at university? Is that what it's called? Actually, I did run a course on sex. It was wonderful because it brought in everything. We when you talk sex- about crossbreeding dogs before, is that some part of your area of expertise? No, it's not, but uh, it's interesting, like everything else. I, you know, my <laughs> area of expertise is looking at the deep evolution of sex, you know, how sex works and how it evolved. Uh, because you probably know that all higher animals go in for sexual reproduction. So you need a male and a female, and you need uh, the male making sperm and the female making eggs. You need a uh, sperm and an egg to make a baby animal. Um, But the way the baby animal becomes male or female varies enormously. In humans and other mammals, uh, it's done by a gene on a chromosome. Uh, A lot of reptiles and fish 
uh, don't have genes at all, they would do it by environmental cues like temperature. And in fact, there's some fish that can even change sex when they're adults, when they get a certain social cue. Harley, you like to breed a lot. What uh, environmental conditions were suitable for you? <laughs> um, j- just a, a lack of forethought and a bit of confusion. <laughs> Yes, at least you said forethought. I didn't know you were saying a lack of for something, and I was like, <laughs> maybe you need to talk to your wife. But now, Jenny, you said environmental changes and temperature. So you're saying that fish at a certain temperature, they're guaranteed to have girls in some fish, well, yeah. not moment. girls, Dave. <laughs> fish, cool. a female, like Corey. Some fish uh, and some reptiles, like alligators, do it. For instance, if it's hot when the eggs are incubating, they're all males. But if it's cool when the eggs are incubating, the same eggs all hatch into females. So this is <gasps> really. Insane different way of doing it and my favorite fish is actually a a fish that does it uh, by a social cue so there's a a male which has blue head and he's in charge of a whole bunch of a harem of of demure little golden females but if we take the male out the biggest female becomes a male in 10 days flat she changes sex 10 days yep so we we can't do that because well we're stuck at 37 degrees for a start, so that wouldn't work very well. But we also have just a single gene on a Y chromosome is all it takes uh, to make uh, a boy. Uh, that gene is called SRY. It's on the chromosome, which is only in males, called the Y chromosome. Uh, and what it does is it turns on a whole bunch of other genes in the embryo to make a testis. So the embryonic testis makes male hormones and it's actually the hormones that make the baby a boy. Isn't that... In terms of temperature, though, I've definitely stepped in some cold waters that have made me less um, traditionally masculine. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's a lot of argument about, you know, could could humans do environmental sex determination? In fact, we seem to be pretty hardwired to run with this single gene called the SIY gene on the Y chromosome. So I I think it's been a a system that's gone on for about 150 million years. It seems to work quite well. The only thing that is a fly in the ointment is the Y chromosome is a pathetic little chromosome. It's only got a few genes on it. It actually off being as big as X chromosome, which has 1,600 genes that do all sorts of useful things. Um, And these chromosomes are once upon a time the same, but the poor old Y chromosome has been losing genes for 150 million years and there's hardly anything left. So, Jenny, so, wait, because with chromosomes, it's always been, it's women who are XX and men who are YY or XY? What is it? Um, well, women have got two X chromosomes and yeah. um, men have got a single X chromosome and this pathetic little Y chromosome. And oh, isn't oh, it oh, funny oh, how, no, how just Can one... you not bring your fingers so close to each other when you yeah. say pathetic little Y? <laughs> there used to be 1,600 genes and there's only 27 left. So um, if things happen at the same rate, they'll all be gone in four and a half million <laughs> years. Oof. It's not the size of the Y chromosome. It's how you use it. Well, there's really only one important gene left on the Y, and that's the SRY gene. But there's other genes on it there that you need to make sperm. 
So this is still clinging on to life, but it's uh, probably not got long to go. And we know that there are a couple of rodent species that have actually got rid of the entire Y chromosome. Uh. Yes, queens! <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, okay, okay, so you're saying... We're doomed. Uh, when is this going to happen? Next Tuesday? What are we not, talking, Jenny? Not we, just you. Well, I, I did say the collective we. I was looking at the other men as we all meekly try to defend <laughs> our Jenny chromosome. Are, me and Jenny are fine. We're clean. I, we, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. But when the Y chromosome goes poof, we, we don't know. It could be very rapid because the Y chromosome is already very unstable. There's a lot Gosh. of pollution. A lot of men are infertile because they've lost part of the Y chromosome. So evolution is probably already planning for what happens next. Oh, so my if the God. Y gets lost, poof, what happens to men? I mean, as a single um, guy, I'm kind of, that does make me a bit happy knowing that there's no risk of that happening. <laughs> but, well, you know, four and a half million years is actually a long time. Uh, we have only been human for about 100,000 years. So I think there's a lot of ways in which we might extinct ourselves in the next four and a half million years. So we may not have to worry about it because we may be all gone anyway. Jenny, you may not know this because you can't see me right at the moment. Uh, so you can't see that I have a, an amazingly powerful moustache and a flannelette <laughs> shirt. But I actually own a bull. Like a, a male bovine. I, that's a thing that I own. And I just had his sperm tested, which is a whole thing. But his sperm <laughs> came back with basically no count of what you're talking about. And am I, am I on, the, on the coal face of an evolutionary problem? <laughs> well, I think your bull might be. It sounds like your bull is not going to be leaving too many descendants. <laughs> um, Harley, does the bull, does its penis look like an udder with four teats hanging off it? Is that... <laughs> I don't know if you got I, sold a lemon, mate. I think I may have got it wrong, Dave. My bull does have four penises, and I've got to tell you, his sperm is delicious. <laughs> Jenny, how did you get into this field? What made you go, I'm going to learn about, you know, the extinction of man? Well, I, I, in fact, I did, that wasn't what I intended to do at all. I was busy looking at the X chromosome and I only got into sex determination quite by accident in 1990 when a guy from America who claimed to have cloned the sex determining gene um, rang me up and asked me to please map this gene and make sure it was on the Y chromosome in kangaroos. And it wasn't. It was on chromosome 5, which is a very strange place for a sex gene. And, in fact, totally. it was the wrong gene. It was my student who actually cloned the right gene. So that's what got me into sex. <laughs> for me, it was Schoon Sunrise. <laughs> Jenny, there is a lot, that you, a lot of information that you've given us. One, uh, men are going to be obsolete in about 4 million years. I can't believe I put money away for super. I'm an idiot. But then... Um, <laughs> But I want to go back to that fish that changes gender in 10 days. How does it know who's the biggest? Well, let oh. me explain about the blue head wrasse. The blue head wrasse is only blue head if you're a male. So a single blue head wrasse male is in charge of a, a harem of 100 maybe females, which are demure little golden fish. Well, no wonder are. his head's blue. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He's a busy boy. If you take him out, the biggest female fish becomes male in 10 days flat. So she, she changes her behaviour in minutes. She starts to change her colour in hours. 
and then her ovary sort of dissolves away and becomes a testis and she's making sperm in 10 days. So does she, that's does she start amazing. fighting and not being able to deal with small amounts of pain as well? Is that something that she goes through? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jenny, how do they know that? So the male leaves. Do the females look around and go, you know, you're the biggest? I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> it, rude. It, um, it seems to be visual. It's, uh, they, they've done experiments where they have a female on one side of the tank separated from a fish on the other. If they put a, a, um, a bigger fish on the other side, nothing happens. If they put a a smaller fish, she changes very rapidly. So she seems to be able to measure herself. Uh, so we've wondered, well, what is it? Is it the stress of wondering, am I the biggest? Am I the biggest? It seems stress genes have something to do with the signal that um, that turns on all these other genes that changes her behaviour and her colour and changes her ovary into a testis. So literally like grow some balls and get the job done. Exactly. She grows balls in 10 days. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> It is. It's the reverse vasectomy. It's incredible. It is. It is. <laughs> Jenny, what I wanted to ask you, they say that humans aren't affected by the environment, yet I've got friends of mine who, to be honest, they had a couple of daughters and then they wanted a son and then they went about with all these wives' tales of icing down the male genitalia, of having certain positions, having certain <laughs> times that uh, they, would, <laughs> they would have sex and yeah. they did have a son. Tons of old wives' tales, and of course, they're some of them are thousands of years old, um, but they don't work. They don't. No. Hey, Jenny, this has been super interesting. Thank you um, so much, Jenny. You're very welcome. It was fun. And guys, hopefully, you listen to Jenny as you did with Claire, because at the end, it's going to be a test. Our third expert has really upped the ante because I was so impressed with Claire's Zoom where she had a bookcase behind her. And this movie critic, Thomas Caldwell, Thomas, you have, <laughs> wow, she had about 800 books behind her, but by the looks of things, you have about 1,000 books and DVDs. Uh, so I'm glad I invested so much money and time into redundant media. Media that's worth nothing now. <laughs> I'm so pleased I invested so much time and money into that. (laughs) Considering my internet connection, I would love that room right now. That's fair enough, yeah. (laughs) That is true. You remind me of uh, my girlfriend in high school whose father bought all these laser discs and said they'll never go out. Oh, Oh, dear, yeah. Put those with the Betamax tapes. Yeah, that's it, mate. I'm assuming you're going to talk about a movie, not all the movies. No, I thought I'd, I'd narrow it down. So I'm going to talk about my favourite film of all time. It legitimately is my favourite film of all time. I'm not just Jack trying and to Jill. be a wanker. No, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, not, Fast not and Furious 8. Yes! No, 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 I'm talking about... And I thought it would be a good one to pick because it's a film that cinephiles usually love, but it can bewilder people who don't live and breathe cinema. And that is 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I, I do think is... Not only is it my favourite film, I think it's the greatest accomplishment in cinema history. Thomas, do you have a version of like a guilty pleasure movie, a movie that you know is critically like very embarrassing to admit to, but for whatever reason gets you right in the happy places? As a rule, I don't believe in the notion of a guilty pleasure. You either love something or you don't. Having said that, I am still so ashamed at how hard I laughed when I went to see White Chicks, I, I laughed way too hard when I saw that film in the cinema. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there's that I, I fantastic Terry, Terry Crews scene where he starts singing uh, Vanessa yes. Carlton, which is probably the highlight of the film. Exactly. Yeah, and I sometimes just uh, Google that scene on YouTube just for a laugh. So, yeah. Righto. <laughs> now, Thomas, I am going to get you to give us a synopsis of the film. And I did watch it last night. Let it not be said, I'm not prepared for this podcast. Mm. I'm going to give you the layman's review, which is what I did last night. And then we'll compare it to yours. From what I saw, four things happen. One, <laughs> a monkey man grabs some bones and stuff. A lot of things happen. <laughs> Secondly, a dude flew to the moon. Thirdly, a guy went to Jupiter. And at the end, I should have been on psychotropics because the end blew my tiny mind apart. And it was 2001, no mention of Y2K or Dido. So what <laughs> is the movie about? That's a, that's Sorry, a, that's can, a, I just, can I just cut in there and give my own uh, oh, review? Because I also only Harley. watched it last night and I fell asleep uh, with my youngest child uh, in front of the film, uh, much to my wife's disgust, because she's like, this is for work, that's why we're watching it. <laughs> and when I woke up, she was just standing over the top of me and she went, it's about doors. <laughs> 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 it would have been great if you start talking about Jim Morrison, like pretending that's what the film was about. And, and, and get psychedelic. You know what? I am so precious and protective of this film, and yet those two summaries are perfectly legit. I think they're pretty good. Thomas, wow. I'm not going to give you mine because you've said you're protective of the film. Yeah. yeah no, <laughs> I, I think I can be a bit more chilled out about it now than I used to be. I used to get very precious about this. <laughs> What's look, the worst... What's the worst theory you've heard about what happens uh, at the end of the film? Oh, am I jumping ahead there, Dave? Sorry. No, you're good. I, I think this is one of those films where all theories are perfectly legitimate. It's, and that's what makes the great film. It's very much open for interpretation. And I think the one mm. I've got, which I'll give to you, is kind of the standard stock and trade uh, um, interpretation. But I think you can go into all sorts of paths with this film. And that's part of its beauty. So for anyone who hasn't seen the film or possibly has seen the film and they were under the influence of some stuff, what, what is the plot? Sure. Look, it, it's, it's all about evolution. So the film starts with humanity in its very early form. We see them as sort of these primates and they're starving, they're dying out, they're all a bit useless and then overnight this mysterious black monolith shows up. It could be an alien, it could be a piece of alien technology, it could be God. And the, the apes interact with this monolith and the next morning they've jumped ahead in their evolution. It somehow taught them, it somehow trained them to now use tools. They can pick up a bone, they can hunt for meat, they break the vegetarian diet uh, and, and now they start to thrive as a species. Um, the downside is they also very quickly learn to turn the tool into a weapon and commit the first act of violence. We then cut to three million years later after seeing the bone being thrown up into the air, we have this brilliant graphic match to a satellite floating in space. We then get an extended sequence of space objects floating around to uh, a Strauss waltz that's simply there to celebrate the grace and beauty of space technology. And then when the plot kicks back in, we learn that a monolith similar to the one the apes encountered had been buried on the moon. And when that had been dug out and a bunch of uh, human astronauts go to check it out, it emits this high-pitched radio signal, sort of like an alarm signal, if you like, telling the rest of the universe that humanity has now got to the point where they can travel to the moon and dig something up. 
Cut to a few years later, we were on a spaceship called Discovery One on its way to Jupiter. It's going to find out where the radio signal had gone to. The three of the crew on this spaceship are in suspended animation. Two are basically glorified maintenance workers. And then there's the computer, Hal. Hal has uh, a meltdown, has a bit of a sort of a bit of a neuroses uh, attack. Um, he sabotages the mission in trying to complete it, trying to remove the human element so the mission doesn't fail. Uh, so Hal, as technology, becomes a weapon once more. And the only surviving member, Dave, then shuts down Hal, um, finds out the truth behind why the spaceship's going off to Jupiter. He's to track this radio signal. And he's now got nothing to lose. So he gets a little pod, a little spaceship that leaves the main one, and he encounters another monolith, which somehow transports him into another world, or is it another universe, where he then finds himself in an ornate um, hotel room, which has sort of been... The idea is that's meant to be designed to make him feel comfortable, just like we create artificial enclosures for animals in zoos. This is this alien species trying to create an environment to make him feel comfortable. While he's in this environment, he's somehow aged and then evolved into a new creature who we see at the end of the film floating in space, looking like a giant unborn baby. And that's the final or the next step of humanity's evolution. Spoilers. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, major spoilers in that. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't, it, it was made in 1968, so if you haven't gone around to seeing it, that's really on you. Um, yeah. but from what I gathered, everything you said, yeah, doors. <laughs> um, <laughs> My wife was correct. Yeah. Now, okay, so give us the nuts and bolts of it. Like I said, I, after watching it, I realised, okay, it's made in 1968. Uh, the man behind it, any person who's in a movie is always like, this man is a genius. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. This was his eighth feature film. Um, he was a critical and commercial success at this point. Before that, he'd made Dr. Strangelove. Uh, he'd made the adaptation of Lolita. He'd done Spartacus, Paths of Glory. And he, look, he's really one of the most renowned filmmakers ever to live. He's so meticulous in detail with either factual information that goes into the film or, or just the technical process of making a film, notorious for doing multiple shoots. Did he do White Chicks as well? He, funnily enough, he wasn't involved with White Chicks. Why did I confess to that? <laughs> Although he did make Eyes Wide Shut, and I don't know, that's more of a controversial film of his. But there were Kubrick, a few White Chicks in that, yeah. There were. Um, Kubrick has always been fascinated with technology, violence, sexuality and social structures, and he, all his films have this idea of... Uh, he's got a fairly pessimistic view of humanity, I think. So he sees us all as prone to violence and his films are interested in exploring that tension between social control but also maintaining individuality. Right. So how do, we, how do we suppress our, according to Kubrick, in my opinion, innate violent impulses without completely dehumanising us? I mean, the next film he would make is A Clockwork Orange, which is a film where the conditioning goes yeah. too far mm. and, and people become completely dehumanised. My fascination whenever someone says it's their favourite ever film, I, I always like asking just about that person. So how old were you when you first saw it? Did you feel like it was your favourite from the get-go? And how many times have you seen it since? And do you ever skip the the, the psychedelic scene? <laughs> because that <laughs> went for freaking ages. <laughs> oh, that went for ages? Because I love the rest <laughs> of the film. Everything up until that point, I was on the edge of my seat. Like, I loved how there was lack of dialogue and sound that was more like spoke volumes. Yeah, isn't it great when, like, you're like, oh, where's the story? Nowhere. I love this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's all in there. I'm sorry, Thomas. I'm sorry. No, it's nothing I haven't heard before. I used to love it when I was a teenager and then I realised, I watched it last night and I was like, oh, no, I just, like, hadn't, like... It's a I- slow-paced film by today's standards. And actually, just an interesting note about that psychedelic stuff at the end, this film was a real slow burn film when it was first released. It took a few months to gain momentum and it mainly did because sort of young counterculture people were into it. And there are all sorts of rumours that some cinemas were advising people at what point in the film to drop acid so that would kick in right when the psychedelic stuff happens. So that wow. was actually, I mean, it's, it's a 1968 film, so that psychedelic component was a big selling point. But um, yeah. I, I saw this, I reckon, when I was seven or eight. I was, I was born at the height of Star Wars mania and Steven Spielberg dominating the box office with things like E.T. And I just craved science fiction and... And even at that very young age, there was something about it that triggered this sensation in me that cinema could be more than just entertainment. And cinema as entertainment is fine. I love it. I've probably seen Blues Brothers more than any film ever. <laughs> Great. But this would be the second film I've probably seen more so, than any others. Right. So, Thomas, I don't want to be the capitalist in the room, but I will be. When you're talking about success, obviously critical success is something. Did this make money? I mean, it must have cost a bit of money because people who haven't seen it, the special effects still hold up. It is incredible. incredible. It is a beautiful piece of art. It, it is really, really. It's a beautiful film and a terrible movie. Like, Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what if I mean? It was, if it was on Tinder, that's its one-liner. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I mean, this and it's a good example of how cinema is a visual art form, like, and, and the, the visual impact just trump everything for me. It's worth noting, noting that Douglas Trumbull is the name of the guy who did the special photographic effects on it. And he would go on to do things like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And the moon Blade landing. Runner. <laughs> <laughs> and the moon landing. And more recently, The Tree of Life. So, yeah, and, and the effects do, do really hold up. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't a popular film when it first came out. It had mixed review, reviews, but it generated... This was back in the age where films could be in cinemas for a few months before they were written off as a failure or success. So it generated an enormous amount of word of mouth and popularity and became huge. You know, because it's a film that was made so long ago, uh, I always feel like I've seen Watch the Simpsons enough that now (laughs) after revisiting the film, like, oh, that's where all those references were. But after watching it, because it was made in 68, it seems like it's influenced so many films. Mm. So I was looking at it going, oh, that reminds me of Star Wars as the spaceships are going through yeah. and all the vistas and, the, and that uh, and all the orchestral music and whatever. Oh, its influence is huge. I mean, before this, science fiction was fairly B-grade. I mean, and Kubrick felt no one had ever made a good science fiction film before. He was going to make the first one, which I, I don't agree with, but nothing was ever done quite on this scale with this level of special effects. And then it would be, you know, and this was 68. It wouldn't be until 1977 that you then got Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and science fiction became a legitimate blockbuster genre. Well, I do want to know, Harley, you fell asleep during it. I feel like a younger Harley brain would have really gone hell for leather on this movie. Well, at the start of it, because I actually genuinely hadn't seen it and it's one of those films I really wanted to get around to watching, and I said to my wife, we should take some mushrooms. You're like, we've only got three kids and you know, <laughs> I, I, they, they, they all have uh, varying different degrees of ability to stay asleep. And I was like, why don't we just have some mushrooms and watch this? And one of the other things she said to me when she woke me up after an hour of falling asleep during your favourite film, Thomas, was, <laughs> I'm so glad we haven't had mushrooms. I'm like, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
You know, Thomas, this is one thing, and this probably proves how simple my brain is because we're talking on lofty ideals of what the film is all about. And a lot of when I was watching it was like, how do they get that person to walk a bit wonky when they're in the um, spaceship? <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought, how does he do all this? Because you don't have zero grab. You can't just grab you know, a spaceship. I think that may have been a rotating set. Um, so the set would have moved while the person... Yeah, walked Especially around. Especially the it. jogging scene, I believe. It yes, was, uh, yeah, it, that, that, it that's right. It's coming back. Yeah, it was it was a giant rotating rotating set. So that's yeah. incredible. So yeah, I guess the camera's fixed because if people haven't seen it, there's one of the astronauts, travelers, whatever you want to call them, in the spaceship who's walking around this circular room, and I'm saying like, I'm like, but hang a second, he's just walked up a wall, and now he's upside down on the roof. What's going on? <laughs> so it kind of breaks your brain in that capacity. Well, broke my brain trying to figure out. I'm like, how many times do they go to Bunnings? How many tools do they need? <laughs> I did get triggered when there was a rumor that what's happening in secrecy was that there might have been an epidemic happening. I'm like, no, please. Movies are an escape. I don't need epidemia right now. Oh, yeah. But look, in this film, it's all a fake, isn't it? It's all a cover story. So, yeah, there you go. Oh, all conspiracy God. theorists are out. Again. 2001 predicted 5G. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Harley, given that you fell asleep in the film, I just want to get a perspective. So what, Harley, would you consider is your favourite film that would keep you awake? Oh, that would, that would make me stay up. That's a, look, I'm, I'm very much a product of the end of the 90s, uh, being I was 19 in 1999 when Fight Club came out. And I know I'm a part of what is considered a cliche of men being into Fight Club, but I really love Fight Club. I think it was a brilliant film and I think it was a great exploration on the fragility of masculinity. And Doors. <laughs> and Doors. Yeah, I like that. That's it. I love Fight Club. I think it's a brilliant film, so good call. It is a great film, but you talked about it. So, Loss, Harley. Um, you know the rules. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Thomas. Oh, shit. I've been here for so long. Nah. Hey, Thomas, thank you so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, guys, obviously the podcast is called There Will Be a Test. So, guess what? There's a test. What? Shit. Come on. Yeah, sorry. That was misleading. But I've got some questions here in my hands about everything that you just listened to. I'm going to see how much you were paying attention. And, Harley, you seem to be the first cab off the rank. You feeling confident, mate? Yeah, mate, I'm fired up. <laughs> okay, we're going to start with Claire Wright, Professor Claire Wright. She talked about the Eureka Stockade. And the question I throw to you, mate, is said, roughly how long did the battle last? It was 15 minutes of absolute solid Australian gold. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. How disappointing is it that it was 15 minutes? This thing no, that- I don't see. I don't see that as a negative, David. I think that that is truly Australian. It's like we've got a problem. Let's find a solution. How long is it going to take? Quarter of an hour. <laughs> okay, Michelle. What were the stars on the flag made out of? Underwear. Little little panties. Little ladies' panty. What are they called? Petticoats. <laughs> Petticoats. That's yes. exactly the answer. They feel like simpler times when you refer to them as that, don't you think? Petticoats. 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 I'm going to start referring to my underwear as petticoats. Oh, really? Oh, no, nah, I've done a dirty of me petticoats. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to start referring to my underwear as the stockade. Because <laughs> <laughs> of the bloodshed. <laughs> <laughs> 
no defence out the back. Delirium's <laughs> 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 kicked in. Now, Dill, mm. what was the miner's jail called? Uh, stockade, wasn't it? Uh, it was more specific than that. Uh, the, no, I, I mean, yeah, just that's I'll just <laughs> the, the log, the log. Oh, very the log. good. Yes. You got it. I was like, there's something, there's something about a stump. <laughs> I feel like you just dropped a log on that answer. Like you got yeah, really yeah, yeah. I gotta go change my stockade. <laughs> Bryce, here we go. Claire described the stockade as kind of like a what? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> she, she, well, like a bad time, like a hangover, <laughs> like a uh, like a crappy little, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like a like a camping ground? Oh no, a bad fence. It was a it was a, oh, a crap uh, well, fence. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna take that. She said shitty fence. Oh, well, <laughs> be, no, you get the point. I think that's close enough. No one has failed so far. We're ripping through this. We're now moving on to animal gender questions that Jenny mm. was going through, which we had <laughs> arguably far too much fun with. So, <laughs> Dill, in mammals, which gender has the X and Y chromosomes? That would be the male. Are you sure? Well, <laughs> it's a 50-50 shot, I think, according to that binary description. So, yes, I'll go with male. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, Harley, which sex of the blue-headed wrasse has a blue head? Uh, that would be the, the blue-headed wrasse would be the male, uh, uh, but uh, it could have been a female that took the place of a male Oof. when the male took off to the shops uh, and opened a milk bar in Darwin. <laughs> it just dawned on me because, as we said earlier, once the male leaves, the biggest female turns into the male. Imagine the male had just been tucked down the street and goes, all right, what happened here? <laughs> Sarah, I told you, I was only gone for 24 hours. <laughs> I'm just getting a loaf of bread. <laughs> oh, no. Dill, what's going to happen to the Y chromosome in about 4.6 million years? It's going to uh, go from 27 to zero. Yeah, that's it. We're done. Harley, does chilling your bits before you have sex help determine the sex of a baby? Uh, uh, no, but it does give you a new and interesting way to uh, <laughs> do what you have done to put some spice into your now uh, failing relationship. Is this all hypothetical? <laughs> Lockdown's been great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're going to move on to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Michelle, how old is 2001 A Space Odyssey? I can't do maths. I was told there would be no maths, but it was in 1968. So I don't know how many years that is, but I tell you what, it's uh, cinema's come a long way with their stories 52. Now. Oh, Harley's jumped in. Yeah. All right, mate. <laughs> with the steel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give it to Harley. You did the quick math. Oh, man, I used to be an accountant. Bloody hell. <laughs> uh, all right, Dill. How many films had Kubrick made prior to 2001? He did mention it, didn't he? Uh, I want to say that, that eight is what I'm thinking. I think it's seven. Uh, oh, this is the eighth film, so this will be seven before that, oh. Dave Thornton. <laughs> you know, no, I'm going to give it to Michelle. Oh. Good job. 
Because <laughs> if she hadn't jumped in on that, you would have gone, yeah, no, it's right. And then I would have smugly gone, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harley's um, harley me and I've harley you. Okay, right. I'm trying to, <laughs> now I'm about to harley harley. Okay. Harley. Put a bit of ice mm. on your Harley and it feels different for your relationship. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Are we calling our penises Harley now? This yes. Yeah. Underwear's petticoats and our penises Harleys. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to open this one up to the floor. Oh, Who, yes. Give me the first answer. It's going to get the point. Okay. What did Harley's wife say the film was about? Doors. Doors. Did I steal the point? Did I steal that point? I feel, yeah, Dill just got there just earlier. I don't even know if that was your reception, Harley. I'm, I'm sorry. This I is bullshit, know. mate. It's is... <laughs> Last one. Michelle, how old was Thomas when he first saw Space Odyssey? Do you Did remember? Like 10? No, nah, 7 or 8. A- 8. Oh, Harley! Uh, Harley's done it again. He swept uh, in. Harley Breen is the winner. That is is ridiculous. With the lack of technology, it was like he was at the end of Interstellar giving his answers through, like, the library brooks. (laughs) Well, look, also, he's out in a paddock on his own in Dalesford. I thought if he doesn't get this win... I don't know what will happen. (laughs) Honestly, since I found out yesterday that my... Bull's sperm, funky. I, this has been the best thing that's happened to me. Thank you so much. It's been so great. <laughs> well, that's a mental picture we can leave everyone with. But Michelle, Dill, hey, thanks so much for joining us, guys. You were uh, incredible. Thank you for having us. Thanks. We, lo- we lived. We learned. Usually I ask you what you're up to. There is a global <laughs> pandemic going on at this point in time. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything to plug, but if not, of course, tell our audiences about your social media presence. Harley, where can they find you? You can find me uh, on Instagram and Facebook at Harley Breen, and I am doing my best to try and generate some form of income so that the three children I have made can stay alive. So watch this space. <laughs> Michelle, how about you? You can find me uh, just at Michelle Brazier on pretty much every platform. And how about you, Dil? Uh, I'm at Dilruk J. And if people who listen to this podcast can also maybe check out my own podcast called Fitbit Pod. Otherwise, my Amazon uh, Prime special bundle of joy is now streaming on Amazon Prime. So that will be nice if you can check it out. Yeah, why wouldn't you? So thanks so much for joining us. Episode five will be coming out as soonish. Thanks again to Moondog for their sponsoring. Geez, they do some good work. I'm going to enjoy that once this pod's over. Uh, and hopefully we'll see you soon. That was There Will Be A Test. Hi, Dave here again. We hope you enjoyed listening to the episode as much as we enjoyed making it. You know, the best way you can show your appreciation is to rate and review us. And did you know you can do it while you're still listening? Yeah. So I'll just awkwardly pause here while you pick up the phone and give us those five stars. Yeah. Good looking devil. Hey, just do it like that. Alrighty, I'll just assume you've done it. Yeah, thanks. And of course, we'd like to thank today's experts. We had Claire Wright telling us all about the Eureka Stockade. And if you want to go on her website, she's got so many awesome books. They're well worth reading. Also, Jenny Graves talking about animals and genders and how those things can sometimes be fluid if it's over 27 degrees. And lastly, we had Thomas Caldwell on about 2001 A Space Odyssey that he watched when he was seven or eight. That's, wow, impressive. Remember, there are links to all the images and topics we discussed in the show notes, so check those out. This podcast was produced by Jed Wood with the invaluable assistance of talent coordinator Michael McDermott. 
We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording and we pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Dave Thornton, and catch you next time where there will be a test. Thank you.